Welcome to Reply Guys. The leftist feminist comedy podcast for the rest of us. I am Kate Willett. And I'm Julia Clare. Julia, how are you doing? I'm good. I don't I'm trying to think of what I did this weekend. Oh yeah, it was uh it's my boyfriend's birthday. Men don't do anything. They don't know how to throw parties. Yeah, I mean <sighs> I don't know. I definitely feel like uh, when you meet a birthday man, mm-hmm. like a straight guy who's really into birthdays, it is the exception. It's the, it's not the yeah. It's not the rule, but I feel like we have some kind of cultural unspoken norm that um, that heterosexual men are not allowed to get super, super stoked about their birthdays or something. He was excited about it. He was like throwing a party anyways. and But all he got was like, he got a ton of booze, but that's it. And I was like, it's hot, and it's everyone's first party since COVID, for the most part. People are going to die if you don't give them food. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, I uh, I tried to take care of that. But it was pretty fun. Um, I, I do, I do want to say, I, I want to hear about your week, but I also have, I just think, maybe our strongest contender for Reply Guy of the Week who? Um, the New Hampshire Libertarian Party. Oh my god, I saw that shit. Okay, let's, yeah, go into it. But, um, I truly, I just couldn't believe my damn little eyes. Um, yesterday, the New Hampshire Liber- Libertarian Party, uh, tweeted from... <laughs> From their account, um, legalized child labor. Children will learn more on a job site than in public school. Which is already incredible. I mean... They're they're trying to... Okay, so, you know, I understand capitalism. I'm a materialist, all that. I do want to say that there is part of me that wonders, like, you know, most libertarians are, are motivated by, like you know, money and shit, but I Age feel consent like laws. This, this is, I feel like this is like another move to be like, can we fuck the kids? Like, that's, well, no, that's exactly what I working. Then we can fuck the kid. Then guess know? what? Sex work is work. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, I completely agree. Um, so about, obviously they got extremely ratioed from this tweet. Um, and then they like doubled down on it an hour later saying at the very least the minimum age to work is a state's rights issue. Federal minimum work ages are unconstitutional. Just absolutely batshit and even Gary Johnson who was the big libertarian candidate res- responded, "I'm sorry but no, this isn't what libertarian means to millions of Americans." Pushing, pushing a, dis, a disturbing and out-of-touch stance on child labor is entirely detached from what people need in America today. This does not advance liberty or help change people's opinions. 
And I, so I was tweeting, I mean, I, Gary Johnson is a fucking uh, moron, but. Uh, but I do love that response. That's that a great funny. response from a fellow libertarian. Um, I, so I was tweeting about this, just saying that like, even for libertarians, bring back child labor is an absolutely batshit thing to say. And then someone responded to my tweet saying, I worked tobacco when I was a kid. It was really hard work, but it didn't hurt me. I think it should be left to the kid to decide. Let kids decide if they want. I mean, no, 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 no. Yeah, man. I feel like these uh, a few weeks ago, there was this woman that was really pissed off online who was, you know, she's like a low level anti-vaxxer, like not someone who's like, I'm against all vaccines, but someone who's like, I'm just asking questions. Mm. And this was like this, you know, she was asking like, uh, you know, just being very upset that teenagers will be able to get the vaccine without their parents consenting. So like if someone has an anti-vax parent, at least in some states, um, the teenager will be able to go get the vaccine just on their own or at school. Um, you know, and I'm like, what do you guys think about kids? Like, do you want do you want kids to be able to decide if they can work or do you want to, you know, have like fucking parental consent laws with abortion? I don't know. I guess. Yeah, there's a difference between libertarians and regular Republicans. But I just feel like the right has has no coherent idea of what a child is. You know? No. <laughs> yeah. What is a child? That is, that's like, at CPAC, that's going to be like a main uh, topic on the debate stage. What is a child? What constitutes a child? Can we exploit it for labor? Do they uh, have rights? No. Yeah. Uh, should they be able to work? Yes. Should they be able to go on a date with me? Yes. <laughs> depends on the kid depends on the kid leave it up yeah. to the kid it's so disgusting it's so it's disgusting gross. i i feel like any kind of like oh man i don't know it's libertarians are just like gross i got in a fight with a libertarian in tennessee so not like a physical fight or anything but i was in tennessee this weekend i did my first weekend of road gigs you know everyone's it had to be vaccinated to come in and stuff. And it was great to be back on stage. Um, and I went out with some people after the show and was talking and I like forgot what it's like to talk to libertarians and other conservative people. Cause usually when I argue with someone, it's like a lib, like in mm -hmm. New York, you know, where they're like, I actually think Kamala is good. And I'm just like, like I can just use lib reasoning to make the person realize they were wrong, you mm -hmm. know, just be like, you know, well, uh, I actually think it's really bad to put people in jail and stuff. And, you know, especially cause I'm a woman, they'll, they'll, they'll see at least some grounds me, but libertarians, man, you know, it was, they, you don't have anything in common with those people. Uh -huh. I mean, kind of, you kind you kind of do like they're against, you know, we're, we're not into, um, there are things that we agree with libertarians on like drug legalization and stuff, but uh, yeah, I mean, but I has also forgot how it's to a very fun. it's a very short list of things that we agree yeah, with libertarians. I totally on. agree. Yeah, and it's also like I have forgotten like how to be like socially normal from being quarantined. Um, I just am not like 
I forgot how to do the thing of like, let's agree to disagree, you know, like, I'm just like, ah! <laughs> I need to stop. I need to stop and just realize that. I mean, not- Kate, all do love and respect. How good were you at, at let's agree to disagree before the pandemic? Depends, because I'll argue with my close friends or partners. But usually if like the person is not in my life, I'll be like, mm, whatever, not worth it. You know? Yeah. But- yeah, I I mean, how concerned libertarians are with age of consent laws is, to me, everything you need to know about the libertarian platform. Um, they're just a they're just a, a group of people who who want to be able to fuck kids. I think, but yeah, it's. Did you see that one? This was the libertarian debate a few years ago. Should someone have to have a government-issued license to drive a car? Hell no! What's next? Requiring a license to make toast in your own damn toaster? The license to drive? You know, I'd like to see some competency exhibited by people before they drive. (laughs) Yeah, that is Gary Johnson getting booed at the libertarian debate in 2018 for uh suggesting that people should have to exhibit competency before they drive these people are just bad shit nuts once again gary johnson out of step with his own party his own libertarian party you know get on board we're we don't have we're not making anyone get a driver's license and we're letting kids work get out of our lane gary johnson yeah I think I would employ my cats if I could. If I could put those little bees to work, I would give them a job. I would. I I think that how much I love my cat, I understand. Like, I just, I would never want her to work a day in her life. I want her to be, I just want her to sleep all day. No, I understand. You are, you're a good cat parent, but like, I'll be honest with you. I have had it with the arrogance of little Pearl. Mm -hmm. Um, She thinks that she's better than everyone. And I'm like, yeah, you've never worked a day in your life. It's time for you to start contributing to this household. So absolutely. I get it. Well, but it's it's uncomfortable for me because I'm the boss in this situation. Right. Like I'm the one that's like, I don't know, but I love those little meat beasts. I haven't been away from them at all because i'm just fully back on tour right now and uh yeah i miss them i miss those little fuckers so much i am i feel very sad that i don't get to wake up with a thing snuggling my face i mean it's it's tough out there life is back i you know new york the the most the most terrible parts of new york are back like uh you know running into someone in the subway who you went on four dates with two years ago and never wanted to see again. That part of New York is back too. See, I I will, you know, I'm going to agree to disagree with you here on this point. Famous diplomat, Kate Willett. Because what I would say is New York is actually the best place in the world for not seeing people that you don't want to see. Like, I, I have, like, I, I agree with you in theory, but my experience, my personal experience has been... Your I, lived experience. Just go for it. Say your lived experience. My lived experience <laughs> has been very different. Yeah, I know what you mean. I mean, it's like, 
Uh, I'll pro- I'll probably see a few people I don't want to see in this in this coming year. But you know, maybe not, right? Because here's the thing: maybe you date people that are out and about. People that I date. Oh, are, that's true. They don't leave their houses. Yeah, I'm attracted to profoundly antisocial individuals. Yeah. And so well, and that same is same thing. Like that's a blessing for you. Yeah, like uh, I, you know, you see like stand ups do this bit a lot. You know, various forms of the bit. Like, oh, all my exes are getting married. Well, you know what? None of my exes are getting married. Not now. Not ever. Mm-hmm. <laughs> They're holding on till the end. You know, so I mean, that's my that's my lived experience. That is, I mean, and on that note, I, I think uh, I think we should come to a close today. We've we've said everything there is to say about our lived experiences. Um, um, such a good episode, didn't you feel like this was a really good? One? I loved this episode. I love talking about organized labor, especially with uh, someone who knows way more about it than me, which is most people. Um, we wanted to do a bit of a how-to on, like, unionizing your workplace and, like, how to actually get started with this for listeners who might be interested in unionizing their workplace. Like, what's the actual fucking process of getting that started, you know? It's praxis. This is a praxis episode. It's praxis. Yeah. Um, okay, well, enjoy. We'll be back later this week with a Patreon episode. Sorry we took a vacation last week without telling you. This is my first week on the road, and I forgot about. I'm just, you know, I'm, I'm reintegrating. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All right, thank you so much. Bye. Hello, and welcome back to Reply, guys. We are back from vacation, and we are uh, very excited to be joined by someone very special for a long anticipated episode that we've been planning for weeks now um we have a comic and union organizer on Kristen Lighty welcome to the show hey thank you for having me we're very excited (laughs) thanks I don't get invited to talk about union organizing very often so it's very exciting we love union organizing I uh well so this kind of came up because I was like trying to figure out how to unionize a workplace that I was in. And I realized that like, there was not like a bunch of like how to info about like how the fuck to get started. If you actually want to, to do this. And I ended up, you know, talking with you and I realized, Oh man, like however hard I thought this was, this was, was really, really, really hard. So I'll tell you what happened in my situation really quick, which is that I'm leaving that job long before anything, you know, long before it would be possible to to do all of the groundwork to start a union because I don't, it's a messed up situation. I don't want to be in it anymore. And I realized, oh yeah, so what you need to start a union is people who are, one, going to stay around long enough and not remove themselves from the situation if it's too toxic or whatever, or if they have other options. And two, you know, you need people who, like, want to stay there but are willing to put their jobs on the line. And that's, like, kind of a narrow window of people. Uh, yeah, definitely. I, I mean, it takes a lot to organize a union. If it was easy, I don't think nationally we'd be at, like, 6% unionized workforces, you know. And it's strategically designed that way, right, to uh, make sure that it's not easy to do. Because if it was, you know, we'd all have living wage jobs and uh, be happy. <laughs> 
the process that is laid out by the NLRB to organize a union is that you need 30% of your workforce to sign union authorization cards, and then you can apply for an election uh, through the NLRB, which is the National Labor Relations Board. And if you do that, you will fail and lose your election. So even the way that they write the laws and try to tell people is incredibly inaccurate. So can you give us like an overview of what a successful campaign looks like as kind of a a microcosm? Yeah. So ideally, you want to start small and strategically with a few people that have, you know, concerns with management and want to organize. From there, we want to like map the relationships within the workplace and find out who people turn to when they have a problem, who's really trusted in the workplace, uh, you know, who, who everyone kind of respects and looks up to. Those are the people we want to target, to bring on board, to create a campaign. And we really want to anchor the campaign in everyone's shared values. So that means uh, sharing your stories, why you care, why you're passionate. Uh, Because especially as leftists, we have this tendency to be like, oh, I'll show them the data and then everyone will just agree. Um, When in fact, you know, data doesn't move people whatsoever. So you get your core team, you start reaching out and talking to people having what we call one-on-ones, which at first when the pandemic hit, we were very worried about, but Zoom has been an amazing platform for reaching out to people and there's a great sense of privacy to it. So Mm. it's been really helpful Mm. for putting one-on-ones together. Um, So once you have these people all talking to each other, you wanna have what we call uh, public majority structure tests and the lead up to the election. And those are things like direct actions, like um, a march on the boss, which would be everyone going into the boss's office to ask for something or a petition or, um, uh, you know, just some kind of way that we make ourselves visible as we grow. So it's kind of this balancing act, right? Because if the boss finds out you're organizing before you hit a critical point of majority, they'll crush it, right? They'll either go nice guy route of like, oh, we didn't know that you were upset. Let us fix this. Like I was organizing with rainbow apparel workers in Chicago and they were offered paid holidays. And then everyone was like, we won. Like, no, we we could get so much more, you know, Um, or they go, you know, the negative route in which they'll fire someone and make an example. Um, So from there, once, you know, you've started to show the boss that we are the majority um, and we have the majority of people signing cards, maybe like between 60 and 70 percent, then we want to file for an election. And the election will take place on the like in the building that you work in it's kind of it feels a little weird Uh, and then agents from the nlrb will come out and conduct the election and hopefully you win and before that happens you actually want to already be starting working on your first contract so building proposals Um, and that ideally is a perfect campaign Um, and of course there's like a million human interaction factors that come into play and can definitely derail all of that Right. So 30% is the threshold uh, for for signing union cards. But that is, you know, ideally, you don't want to go in with just 30% of your workforce, because that is setting yourself up to lose your election. Uh, You want to have the majority of the workforce, the eligible workforce um, on board with the union so that you 
can then win your election. <laughs> um, so, you know, we've seen uh, when you said march, like a march on the boss, um, actually here in New York, going on right now, uh, workers at Condé Nast are kind of marching at Anna Wintour's house. Oh, my uh, gosh. Uh, which is pretty cool. And Anna Wintour's neighbor, there was a great picture of, of Anna Wintour's neighbor giving them uh, drinks, just like handing out drinks to the people who were picketing. That's uh, so funny. I love and, that. Uh, you know, they had some great signs like, you know, you can't eat prestige in the, the New Yorker font. And, um, you know, the, the labor practices at, at Condé Nast and, and certainly the pay uh, has been the... Uh, is a point of a lot of media attention for a long time now. Um, but it has been, I, I think in industries like that, like prestige industries, um, my thought, and I don't know how correct this is, but it, it would be because so many people already want to work there, it would be very easy for the bosses to just fire anyone who wants to unionize uh, because they know that there are a hundred people laying in wait to take their job where they are paid in crumbs. Yeah. And, you know, I think ultimately that's the argument with every Union really is like, uh, you know, there's always people lining up to take those jobs. Even I work with um, academics now in Wisconsin and, you know, some people feel like, oh, we're professionals. We don't need a union. You know, people people want to be educators. People want to do this. Um, but I think it's really about maintaining the idea that you still deserve a baseline of pay and common decency and respect. And you know, there's scabs in every industry. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, I've, so I'm in a union now. I work at a university and I've been at, so this is the second union, uh, that I've, I've been a part of and they're both at kind of prestigious universities. And even so, even with the, pr the protection and I'm so, you know, I'm so glad to have, to have my union but I mean, it's not, it's not a done deal when, even once you get a union, uh, I, the, the universities that I have worked for have really, they, they still fight the unions every step of the way. And there is a big, there's a big divide even internally between like, you know, you you might work in an office where like two of you are in the union and the rest of your department is not. And that creates a really strange dynamic as well. Yeah. And, you know, honestly, even within your union, you can have um, that kind of tension, right? Uh, because nationally, since Janice versus AFSCME hit, so now all the public sector unions are, are essentially right to work throughout the country. Um, we're, we're learning as a labor movement, we have to go back to the traditional 
national organizing model of unionism. A lot of unions in this country really focused on um, service unionism, which is the idea that I pay my dues and then the union rep will come and fix things for me. Uh, when in actuality, we need to get out there and educate members because we're only as strong as the membership within each shop. So that's why I moved back to Wisconsin post Act 10 because I thought it was so crucial to go teach people about traditional union organizing and what that looks like. Um, Cause it doesn't, I mean, our power doesn't lie in the ability of a rep uh, to represent us. You know, it's what we do for ourselves in our own workplaces. So building visibility in those spots that our right to work is so important. Like when I worked for the United Food and Commercial Workers, I met some workers in right to work states like Kentucky, and they had like the fiercest unions I've ever seen because mm -hmm. they're constantly organizing every day. So tell us about Act 10. Oh, Act 10 uh, was Scott Walker and the, uh, the creation from him and the Koch brothers, which essentially in 2011 took away the collective bargaining rights of public sector workers in Wisconsin. Uh, we don't have contracts. We, uh, we, we can only file grievances over workplace safety, retaliation, and termination. Mm. Um, so it is um, limiting in the traditional sense of unionism, but it's also very exciting because what we've seen is a return to direct actions and um, teaching. I've been working with educators to show them, you know, how we do these direct actions. And I, I find it very exciting and professionally uh, fulfilling. And these are these are public school teachers. Yes, K through twelve. And they don't have the so they under Act Ten they really don't have the protections the regular protections of of teachers unions. No, every uh, change that they want to see to their working conditions has to be one through pretty much doing direct actions or meet and confer sessions, which is kind of like negotiating but not negotiating legally. That is so ghoulish and you know scott walker is kind of national nationally known for um being a a right to work goon and uh union busting and uh obviously the Koch brothers have uh a vested interest in that as well the uh the grand overlords of the right to work movement and I, I think that that's so interesting in a place like Wisconsin that we think of as having a very strong labor tradition, organized labor tradition. So what is the disconnect there between Wisconsin voters, people who would vote someone like Scott Walker in again and again, um, and this, you know, historied tradition of organized labor? Well, I think what the Republican Party has been able to capitalize on is fear. Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. When I left in 2008, originally, Wisconsin had passed a state amendment to ban gay marriage. And also the county I lived in passed a English only ordinance. Mm. I think there was a lot of scapegoating and a lot of sensationalizing that moved people to the polls for the wrong reasons. I mean, Wisconsin's always... We do have that rich tradition, you know, we got fight and Bob Follett, but we also have uh, McCarthy, right? So <laughs> it's been a lot of back and forth. Uh, and that was part of the reason I decided after the Trump election to come home and do this work because I just saw my home 
and I knew we could be better, right? Mm -hmm. um, so when I saw a position for a director with the Wisconsin Teachers Union, I jumped on it um, because I, I do feel like we need to remember that history and embrace it because that's how we all do better. I, so you said something towards the beginning of our conversation that I want to explore more. You're talking about as leftists, we have this tendency to just want to show people the data and be like, of course, it's a good idea. Like, why would you not want to make more money, have better health care, you know, have better conditions? Um, you know, and I, I have I was just in Tennessee and I was I was talking to some people about, uh, you know, why why unions are good. And it, there was just like a, they were they're not on board. And I, I was just wondering if we could kind of talk through some of the like common negative things that people say about unions, reasons people do not want to unionize and how someone might approach those conversations like, you know, from a persuasive human to human way that could actually result in like maybe getting your coworker on board with supporting a union effort. Yeah, definitely. I'd say number one that we hear is the dues are too high. I'm not paying dues. Um, but it's like, if you want to belong to any professional organization, dues are an expectation. And we really do think of it as insurance in your profession. Uh, especially with educators, we offer liability insurance through union membership. And, you know, if something happens within your district, the district's self-interest lies with protecting itself. Um, so that might mean, you know, terminating an educator. So we offer legal services in case of something like that. And then, you know, it's just the aspirational sense of like, do you want to belong to an organization that cares about your profession that is actively advocating for you? Yeah. And also the dues are truly a drop in the bucket. They, you know, they vary from union to union, but in terms of, you know, I, I, I just saw, and this is completely anecdotal, but I, there was this, um, this woman on Twitter who said, um, when my workplace unionized, I got a $14,000 raise. Uh, and the union dues are, her union dues were $700 a year. So, uh, you know, I'm not a mathematician, but uh, <laughs> that seems pretty, pretty obvious to me. Uh, certainly, you know, my union, I think my union dues are probably about, uh, probably about 600, uh, $600 a year. But I know that I would be making at least at least $10,000 less if I didn't have a union. And certainly I wouldn't have the uh, really robust healthcare plan that um, allows me to pay very little out of pocket. Um, so it's, uh, yeah, that is one of those, uh, those arguments that is very easy to poke, poke holes in. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. And I guess, you know, another one that I hear a lot is uh, unions are a third party outsider, an agitator. You know, we're just this happy family and, you know, the union is going to come between that. And in actuality, you know, the union is just giving you a space to advocate for yourself that you couldn't do before. So, you know, there might be a little conflict sometimes, but that doesn't mean. That shouldn't. 
that yeah, makes also, it a family. That makes you, it a family. To, I was going to say. To yeah. have a family, you have to fight. That's we, that's what my experience is anyway. <laughs> yeah. yeah. No, absolutely. And any, and you know, this is not an original thought, but any workplace that really overemphasizes that we're all a family here is probably trying to exploit you. It's like the members of your family who are constantly asking you for money and being like, we're family. Oh, yeah. We were trying to organize a union at Pete's Fresh Market in Chicago, and the boss dragged people in one by one and told the employees, I'm Greek and you're Mexican. We're both Catholic. Why are you trying to do this to me? And like, tried to pretend and cry. And we're just like, what? What is this is new? What is going on? (laughs) Oh, man. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it is this kind of thing where um yeah i saw pretty easily that like the you know if i was kind of going to to continue uh an effort to to unionize the workplace that i decided ultimately to leave uh i saw that they would you know they would crush it with the, the nice guy strategy that you were talking about of like that basically you know it would just be like we hear you. We see you. We're going to, you know, give everyone a very small bonus, you know, and just like, um, I think that some people are, you know, inherently uncomfortable with the adverse, the adversarial nature of, uh, of a union. And I mean, it is adversarial, like the, the relationship between workers and bosses, it's inherently adversarial, but I think a lot of people don't, like that or want to admit that, you know? Oh yeah. And employers will capitalize on that. Like I can't even tell you how many times I've had the cops called on me and they'll take me out of a workplace. And you know, that definitely sends a message to all the employees there. Like don't talk to her and get the cops called. Yeah. Or that you're some kind of, you know, bad criminal who's up to no good or whatever. That's, I mean, it, it almost seems so difficult that to me, it's like it's like mind blowing that it ever does work. And, you know, uh, oh. it's a testament to to people, you know, to just all the work that people put into it. And also just how good of a, a how good of an idea it is to to form a union. Um, I got to say, over the past, like a uh, couple of years, maybe like five years, the increase we've seen in interest and people reaching out and wanting to form unions is pretty amazing. Yeah. I think, well, yeah, that's, uh, the pendulum has swung so far. Um, and I think when when you see people like the Koch brothers who have such a clear vested interest in people not unionizing, and they are some of the most, they're some of the wealthiest people in the world, you think like, hmm, maybe that's, maybe that's not great. And maybe there is actually some value uh in a union some obviously someone like jeff bezos is kind of the the union like union enemy number one at this point um very famously that uh the union vote uh in one of the amazon warehouses failed uh a few months maybe a month or two ago um as someone who works in the the labor organizing space what did you think uh watching that all unfold i was so excited when i heard it was happening 
Um, and then I read Jane McAlevey's uh, kind of summary of the campaign and what had happened. And um, I saw a lot of red flags personally, uh, just about like the the way that they were trying to reach out to people. And granted, it is a pandemic. But like I said, mm-hmm. you can still do Zooms. You can still do phone calls. Um, you know, they really cited that as an obstacle to reaching out to people. But like the the things they put out on tables that said like the union has your back um i mean that messaging is good but the messaging has to be you are the union and who is it what do they care about to really pull people in and then the fact that and i'm not sure if it was amazon tampering with things by hiring a lot of new people or they just didn't really understand the size of the bargaining unit uh but when they went into file i think it was like there was a thousand more workers than they had originally anticipated and i just feel like perhaps they went to election too Mm -hmm. fast Mm -hmm. but i mean it's going to happen i mean bezos is like he's the rockefeller of our time the henry clay frick you know i feel like we are living in a new gilded age oh we no we absolutely are and you know the much has been said about uh the monopolies that have uh emerged in the past few decades you know, Amazon buys everything. They bought Whole Foods. They bought, um, uh, they bought Phoebe Waller Bridge. They bought, um, you know, they they actually just <laughs> they acquired Phoebe Waller Bridge. Yes, my my beautiful sweet woman. Um, they just acquired MGM, the the movie studio, and I think that set off a lot of alarm bells for me because obviously um the film industry and film and tv are union industries uh you know you have the the screen actors guild the writers guild uh and i wonder what that like a lot of and also a lot of like the grips uh the um uh, you know the people who who work in the technical aspects of uh, film and TV are also union. And I just wonder what the implications of that are for when someone like Jeff Bezos uh, acquires a major film studio. Oh, definitely. I mean, and also like subtly affecting what content is made as well. Yeah. Yeah. You know, one thing I didn't realize is the 10 commandments weren't as widely, um, displayed at courthouses throughout the country until that Charlton Heston movie came out. And they're the ones that gave people statues uh, to put at their courthouses. Yeah. So like what they could do is wild with the propaganda they could create and spread. Yeah. I mean, we already, you know, we see it already with the Washington Post and like, I mean, you know, not treading any new ground here, but like their, their coverage of Bernie Sanders, I think that there was, that instance where they ran like 16 negative articles about Bernie Sanders within like a one hour period, you know? So obviously like having someone like Jeff Bezos in charge of a a huge media institution is, is going to dramatically shape uh, the dialogue and the content. And, you know, he's going to space soon, Jeff Bezos, um, which it sounds on its face, like good. Okay. That motherfucker will be in space, but you know, these these guys, Jeff Bezos, Elon Musk, like they're, you know, they're literally planning on like moving capitalism to space where they could just be the full on 
overlords. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, and also, to your point, Kate, um, newspapers are, uh, like, major newspapers like the Washington Post are also, like, have, uh, you know, a history of being being unionized as well. And uh, I don't know. It's very... It's it's really disconcerting, and you know there are all of those statistics out there that now the average CEO makes three hundred times more money than the uh, the average worker at their company, and you like you know unionizing your workplace is incredible, but it's not gonna it it will shrink that gap, but. There also obviously needs to be something, there needs to be more uh, structural change that allows workers to have rights in general. Um, but yeah, I think it's not, uh, it's not surprising that there has been such an increase in interest in unionizing um, just as the, the divide, uh, the, the wealth gap between management and workers has absolutely exploded. Yeah, definitely. I mean, unions uh, are really the only tool we have to combat that. And for so long, we've, you know, we've knocked doors and volunteered for the Democrats with an understanding that like they would create laws that are, um, you know, in favor of workers, but they've come up short so many times and i mean i'm an internal optimist i'm still excited about the pro act but um <laughs> like it just i i just uh, you know i i don't know what's gonna turn the democratic party around and get them to realize we're their base and they need to support us um for, for I, those of us who who don't know about about the pro act i we did an, an episode on our Patreon with uh, C.M. Lewis, who's the editor of Strike Wave, um, and we talked about that a little bit. But um, just a, a quick primer on the PRO Act. Essentially, it's just going to make it easier for folks to organize. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I'm <laughs> your, your optimism that it will uh, pass the Senate convince me to be a little more optimistic because I feel like that's for sure not going to happen at this point. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, it probably won't, but I have to have something, you know? I mean, we need the optimism to keep, you know, doing the work that we should be doing, right? Like, because it's, you know, getting uh, black pills, as the boys say. I mean, who, if we are not knocking the doors, who will be knocking the doors, right? We need, we need a little bit of the optimism, a little bit of the hope, uh, but... Uh, I mean, it's just, you know, it seems I, we, we already see this kind of plan unfolding of, you know, the Democrats not doing jack shit and then getting to conveniently blame that on Joe, Man Joe Manchin and Kristen Cinema. you know, whereas if Joe Manchin and Kristen Cinema weren't there, you'd actually see a lot more uh, defectors um, on these, you know, anything pro worker, I think, you know. I think, you know, the criticism of the Democratic Party could be the same for organized labor as well, uh, because we need to be out there with an aspirational platform that people want to be a part of. And I think that's the heart of all organizing. You are so you're so inspiring. I feel like 
I, I can tell that you're really good at this because I feel like if I was a union organizer, I would be like, the boss is a fucking asshole, man. <laughs> like, can't you wrap your head around this? Yeah. Well, you know, it's interesting. That is a lot of organizers instinct to make it about the boss, like all oh, Larry, that guy. But, you know, there'll be a new Larry yeah. every other yeah. day. Yeah. Well, let's let's talk about and, and he'll, but he will always be Larry. He'll his name will always be Larry. Each each Larry will be a Larry. Go ahead, Julia. Sorry. Oh, so as it relates to the Senate vote on the Pro Act, I, I think it's interesting because our usual opponents within the Democratic Party of Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema, the states that they represent, West Virginia and Arizona, respectively, have. Both they both had very famous kind of nationally covered teacher strikes in the last five years or so, um, and West Virginia in particular is kind of known as this uh, state with again a strong history of organized labor, and also Joe Biden, you know, for all of his fraught presidential campaign, uh, you know, ran as like Johnny America who was like very pro-union so it puts i i think that it will be kind of the ultimate test uh because i think that if if democrats do not coalesce around the pro act uh you know democrats in the senate i i think it'll you know i I don't worry about the House as much, but uh, I think it will be very difficult to say that Democrats are worth voting for. Um, and that is not something that I, I say lightly, but I, again, what Joe Biden ran on and the constituency that Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema have I if they don't get behind a pro-union piece of legislation like this I think that that will be a real death knell um I I do I do hope the Democrats see it as a wake-up call um and it's so hard to say because like where I'm at, uh, my Republican state legislators are still pushing for like election, uh, like from the presidential election, they want recalls, they want, uh, you know, they're insane. Oh my gosh. <laughs> um, and you know, like, it's just, I, I think it will wake up um a lot of people a lot of our maps are unfortunately really gerrymandered so it's mm -hmm. difficult to get the good candidates we want in um in wisconsin i've been working on getting people recruited into school board and um, local politics because i feel like that's where we start growing our candidates so that you know we can have good candidates for senate and um, congress but yeah i mean it is i mean up where i'm at anything left or anything really the teensiest bit left of center is your raging socialist so <laughs> yeah i was you know man i was i just did a, a gig in tennessee and i was talking to the people that i was hanging out with and they, they're really cool people but yeah, unfortunately we got on the subject of politics fortunately or unfortunately and 
Man, I heard some stuff that I haven't even heard in a while because I live in Brooklyn uh, in the proverbial echo chamber, as they say, of a leftist podcast. And, um, you know, it was like this this thing where people were like, you know, uh, if Bernie Sanders got elected, um, he, he would, you know, make us all uh, have the jobs that he wanted us to have and, you know, that like take all of our stuff and basically just kind of imagining um, like Joseph Stalin style USSR like forest farming yeah yeah exactly and i forgot that there's people that see anything left of center as like joseph stalin um is how do you have those conversations as a leftist in a somewhat conservative area you know what it's it's interesting because when i just lay it out about what my values are about believing you know everyone should have access to health care everyone should make a living wage um, no one should be discriminated against. Like it, it, everyone agrees. So, <laughs> yeah, I mean, that was the thing is we did reach that level of agreement, you know, where like about healthcare. I was like, I, and yeah, I mean, that, I guess by kind of zeroing in on the specific issue of just like, why should a company that is trying to make a profit be the one to decide if you get medical treatment? Don't you think a doctor and yourself should be? in charge of making that decision, you know? And they were like, yeah, actually that is a good idea. And then went into this whole thing about, you know, well, if we, you know, if we had like government run clinics, then we would have to get rid of the post office. So I'm like, okay, all right. I don't know how to do that. <laughs> like there's just, people believe such, I mean, you know, we see like Republican, you know, Democrat and, you know, but it's like really people believe such a, an eclectic and like inexplicable uh, a group of things. And, you know, like as materialists, uh, we have, you know, at least some kind of coherent, you know, guiding uh, <laughs> principles if, if uh, you know, in, in some ways. But, you know, even among socialists, there's like just a lot of a lot of real difference, you know? Yeah, definitely. Um, and I was I was actually drawn to union organizing because my father had a terrible accident in the paper mill he worked in. Uh, a propane tank caught fire and took out both his legs. And my uncle was able to make a tourniquet around his waist and essentially save him. And then I find out uh, that the company is like spend, sending spies on him to make sure he's really hurt and fighting him on his workers' comp case. Um, and then I found out the Koch brothers owned the mill. Uh, so that was a big uh, wake up for me, very pol politicized me at 23. It made me want to go back to college and do this work. And I feel like it's all about just finding those stories for each other that we can bond and relate on and realize like we have more in common together than, you know, Jeff Bezos or anyone like that. Yeah, I mean, I really, I think that First of all, I'm so sorry that that happened to your dad. And um, I think that there is, I don't know, it's, it can feel like an uphill battle sometimes to kind of convince people that capital is not on our side, that like you know, we can be literally dying and capital will be like, uh, you know, is there any way to extract three more dollars from this person, you know? But I think, you know, people really do see it as like, capitalism equals freedom, 
you know? And so if you that, just work hard enough. Yeah, exactly. Well, that's, that's, that is kind of the uniquely American sickness, I think, is that is convincing people that they have more in common with their fellow workers than they do with management or the boss because or Jeff Bezos even right no no, no no that's what I'm saying it's like they're again that American sickness of like people there are a lot of people who believe that they are just like a few shakes away from being a billionaire or yeah. um even if they're currently making you know $25,000 a year or less so, in some cases you know so the issue it like i actually run into this problem with my dad a lot when i when i try to talk to him about uh, about certain um certain things and he is retired and i'm just like why do you have class solidarity with people who make who are worth 10 times more than you but you have no class solidarity with fellow middle class people or what have you um and it's really i mean that is this weird invisible enemy that i don't exactly know how to combat because it's so deeply entrenched in us as americans to feel like we are just kind of a few turns of luck away from having more money than we know what to do with. Yeah, Jeff Bezos was just a guy with a good idea. Shouldn't somebody who is, just has a good idea be able to, you know, make money from their good idea, you know? Yeah, and I do feel like um, the first couple of years I was a union organizer, I just felt like Captain Bummer because I was talking to everyone about the power dynamics and the class dynamics and just trying to get people to realize, you know, where we fall on this scale and we're never going to be this amazing CEO, no matter how good of an idea we have. Uh, <laughs> I mean, it's not like a message of, um, you know, it's a bummer for people to take that in and realize it. But once they do, then class solidarity is a lot easier. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it makes a lot of sense because there is, you know, I'm thinking about my own process of like, you know, there is, even the places where I encounter stuff now are kind of realizing like, you know, some of the dreams that I have for myself, you know, in terms of comedy, like there's an element of unlikeliness because I'm not, you know, I'm not, I don't have a, like a rich dad who's like super connected and stuff. And that doesn't mean, you know, I think it's like just, it's a kind of very human existential thing to be, you know, conscious of what the odds are against you and then also find it in yourself to keep living your best life but and and that's you know it's a it's a dialectic if you will but um it's it's can be really challenging you know yeah yeah and it's a it's a lifetime of of deprogramming because again we grow up with this messaging that anyone can become the richest person in America. Anyone can become the president. And it's just not true. It's a, it's a fantasy. Uh, but you know, I, again, and it's, it's not, when you're talking to people who are like in their, their fifties and sixties about this and they like, 
there's part of me that it's like, oh my God, they're never coming back uh, from that mindset because it's so deeply burned in their brains. And I would say, you know, I think that generation experienced a lot more loyalty from their employers than what we're seeing now. That's true. And also, I mean, yeah. Well, I mean, you know, it's, yeah, it's definitely, I, uh, my parents, you know, I grew up in a three bedroom house. My parents had two kids, kind of went from middle class to being lower middle class and, you know, they were always really stressed out about money, understandably so, because there was a lot of really important things like medical care that, you know, were, were, were challenging. But that being said, the only people I know who have a three bedroom house and two kids in a city right now are fully fucking rich people with generational wealth, you know? So there is just, you know, things have really changed, you know, not to, this isn't groundbreaking or anything, but it's not the avocado toast as they say, you know? Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, my, yeah, the, uh, the baby boomer generation, um, I think there's a lot of ways in which they, they just can't conceptualize the the realities of of the system that we live in today because, you know, the 1970s was the decade where the the wealth gap was the smallest in, um, in the 20th in you know in the last 100 years, and that is largely to do with the strength of unions. Um, still a lot of hold a lot of ramifications from the new deal were still in place. Uh, there were a lot of regulations that all of course came crumbling down during the Reagan administration. Um, but my, you know, you hear about this, especially for, for like upwardly mobile, uh, white Americans, you hear about, you know, there were these programs i one of my dad's friends was telling me that he got his first condo in uh in boston massachusetts for seventy five hundred dollars in the 80s because there was some uh there was some incentive program for first-time home buyers uh so that's just the kind of that's something that is like they had all of these structural institutions on their side and they now basically kind of treat us like we're we're just a bunch of whiners who don't work hard enough when they really had the wind at their backs yeah their entire 20s and 30s and i do think that there is like you know there's some other stuff that we're contending with too like obviously we've talked a lot about identity politics on the show and you know neither of us are anti-identity politics but i was thinking about this woman that i was talking to and uh in like in Tennessee about Bernie Sanders and she's like you know they just keep trying to like fuck women out of this like they're just you know they just keep not having a woman and it's like I definitely think that like especially for people who grew up at a time where things were even more sexist like you know uh gender solidarity can feel more pressing than class solidarity and there's just like so many I don't know, man. Like, there's just there's so many things to there's there's so many so 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 many obstacles to getting people to like see 
that it's really useful to have uh, working class solidarity, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, and representation within unions is is another uh, hurdle we have to figure out how to organize around, uh, because if it's all straight white men in your union, oh, absolutely, yeah. I'm not I'm I'm not in favor of straight white men. Honestly, before the show, you know, Julie and I were talking about that they should all be canceled, and mm-hmm. that the only way you could get uncanceled if there is a like a tribunal of women that are willing to to come forward to support you and like in a wedding type fashion you have to say is there any woman who feels that this man you know should not be uncanceled and that should be like it should be really hard to get uncanceled that yeah a lot of our union leadership nationally you know it's straight white men who are making three hundred thousand a year um which is is not a union i want to be yeah it's also like is it there is just thing that we didn't even get into because you know, like there's also times where like the the union and the union membership is, you know, not really aligned. Like we saw that in New York with the teachers union. The teachers union was really kind of uh, working with de Blasio to get people to get their teachers back in, in buildings and unsafe conditions, you know, before the pandemic was, you know, under control in any way. And, you know, th- that was I was that was a situation too where you know a lot of people like even though they fully supported the union the union was not on their side you know oh yeah uh and covid was, was so hard to navigate because we saw no leadership at the federal level hardly anything coming in from state our governor tried to do a map and each school district was allowed to decide their own back to school plan so like i was organizing with numerous unions and uh, glad we made it through well, is there anything that we didn't ask you about that you want to make sure to tell our listeners before we wrap it up here? Um, I would say, um, you know, if you are thinking about an organizing campaign um, to look at labornotes.com, they're one of the best resources for um, unionists in this country, I think. And, um, you know, if you I, I just want to, and I know we talked about a lot of gloom and doom, but this really is possible. And it starts with people telling their stories to one another. So if you're concerned about something in your workplace, tell your friend you work with and you can get it started from there. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's a really good point. Cause I do feel like we, you know, we, we got into the gloom and doom and which makes sense, you know, we're freaking leftist feminists. There's a lot to be bummed out about, man. But I mean, you have, a job because this shit really works. You know, people do do it. I mean, and it makes a dramatic difference, you know, in terms of like conditions and pay and, you know, uh, yeah, people organize all the time. So yeah, it's good to be just enough optimistic. Yeah. And the way I see people glow after they've taken part in an action or stood up for themselves, like it's like reinvigorating their souls. It's it's pretty amazing. I'm also going to take this March on the Boss idea. What I'm going to do is go to my uh, shittiest exes and um, collect all their other angry exes and fucking march on it. (laughs) Time to be accountable, bitch, you know? whatever um all right 
Kristen, thank you so much for coming on the show. This conversation has really been a pleasure. And uh, yeah, we're just very lucky to be able to talk to you. Thanks for the work that you're doing. Thank you so much for having me. It was pretty fun and amazing to get to talk about this. No one ever wants to talk about this. Well, we'll have to have you back because we always want to talk about it. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thanks. Thank you so much for listening to Reply Guys. If you like the show, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and subscribe to our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash reply guys, where we have a catalog of over 25 bonus interviews with renowned writers, journalists, and comedians with an additional episode uploaded each week. The show is hosted by Kate Willett and me, Julia Clare. Our producer is Genevieve Garrity. Our theme song was performed by Emily Fremgen, who wrote the song with Kate Willett. Our artwork is by Adrian Lobel. If you want to find us on Twitter, we're at Kate Willett with two L's and two T's. And I'm at O Julia Tweets, O-H Julia Tweets. And Twitter is where you can, of course, also find our reply guys. They are always with us. Bernie, take us out. walking that ribbon of highway I saw above me that endless skyway I saw below me that golden valley this land was made for you and me this land is your land this land is mine